Okay, let's talk about worship. You have uh, the handout in front of you. Let's get started on worship. The intent tonight was to talk and cover three chapters in the book. If you're following along the book, what I'd like to do tonight instead is just cut out the, the ministry and mission. I think most people have a little bit of a pretty good grasp on that. I'd like for us to spend the time we have together talking about worship in a general, in a general sense. So we'll talk about worship, uh, how all creation worships the Lord. We'll talk about worship in a Christian sense, what it looks like for God's people to worship, what is actual Christian worship. And then I'd like to narrow it down to uh, give reasons as to why we do the things we do at Hickory Grove in the worship service. What goes on there uh, and why the things go on like they do. So let's begin. Summary, you have in front of you. What is worship? Worship is, worship is an act of acknowledging and acclaiming the majestic greatness of God, here's an important part, in ways that He prescribes. It's not just that we're talking about the majesty of God and the greatness of God. We're doing it in a way that He has set forth for us. So, in one sense, if you think about worship, in one sense, worship is the, is the purpose for which all things exist. God has created everything to worship, to, when I say that, to declare the majestic greatness of God is the purpose of all things. So if, if that's the case, think about how many things in this world are not being used for their intended purpose. If all things, or let's just forget things because that feels nebulous, people, all people were Everybody in this room created for that. How many people are actually living through and in the God-given purpose of worship? A couple of scriptures I'd like to just point out. We'll kind of uh, rifle through them a bit. The scriptures I'm going to read here, Old and some New Testament, uh, speak to how all of creation was made to worship God. You've heard some of these on Sunday mornings. Psalm 66, 4. All the earth worships you and sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name. Psalm 19.1, I quoted this Sunday. <clears throat> their voice goes out through the earth, their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a, a tent for the sun. Luke 19. Look what Luke 19 says. In Luke 19, um, <clears throat> Jesus is with his disciples and his disciples are saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus says, I tell you, if these are silent, the very stones cry out. You know, it makes you wish that they had been silent, right? A Job, Job 12, I read through Job in my quiet time, going through using the Reader's Bible. Are you familiar with the Reader's Bible? It's a Bible in about six volumes. doesn't have any markings, no verses. It just reads like a book. And I went through, I'm in the poetry section, get through Job. And if you read it in a, a couple of sittings, you get the full impact of his friends, Bildad, Eliphaz, Zophar, and Elihu, all of the terrible advice they're giving. And listen to what Job says in Job chapter 12, verse 7 through 10. Job says, ask the beasts, and they will teach you. The birds of the heavens, and they will tell you. Or the bushes of the earth, and they will teach you. And the fish of the sea will declare to you, 
Who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? In his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. One more. Psalm 96, verse 11 and 12. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that, it, all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy. I just listed those out for you. Just listed those out so that you have just a, a couple of verses that remind you that it's not just one single thing we do on Sunday morning at 11. Uh, the phone going off reminded me, <clears throat> I was at First Baptist Gadsden preaching, and the crowd uh, was probably about this many people. The sanctuary was built, and the, the church was founded in like 1850, before the Civil War. The sanctuary there was built in 1910 or 11, and it has not been updated. So the, the wood, all of it's the same. The gallery uh, balcony around it probably seats eight or 900, maybe 150 people there. Uh, all of them gathered pretty close. And as I was preaching, a woman's phone starts to ring. And it's obvious she's unfamiliar with how to cut that ring off. <laughs> and so I listened to it and listened to it and listened to it. Finally, it goes off, and I didn't say anything. I'm trying to use my best manners. I'm with guests. I don't know them. It's not like I know y'all. I don't know, I don't know these people. And uh, near the end of my message, I'm, right, I'm closing it down, getting ready to finish, and she evidently has grown bored with my preaching <laughs> because she is watching silently videos on Facebook. But somehow or other, she touched it. <laughs> I guess if you touch it, the sound comes on. Well, she again was unfamiliar how to turn the sound off. So near the end of my sermon, uh, there's just some video she's watching. I don't know if it was a dog show or horses doing tricks or something. I don't know. Finally, Matt was down there on the front. I said, Matt, can you turn around and help that lady turn that off? <laughs> so he touched the screen and, and it was off. Sunday worship. Let's talk about why. Why do we worship? What is the why of worship? I'll give you three or four there right in front of you. Uh, why do we worship? Well, the first one is this. God is worthy of our worship. When John looks into heaven, he's standing on the island of Patmos. He has that vision on the Lord's day. He's in the spirit, and he writes the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation, the apocalypse, is the unveiling of Jesus. That's what Revelation means. Try to take all of the, um, the left-behind stuff you might have in your mind about Revelation. Let that, and hear that Revelation is the unveiling of of the coming Jesus. That's what it is. And so he has this vision, right, in Revelation 5, and he, he sees something going on, and he hears it. And here's the worship, Revelation 5, verse 12, and I picked up right in the middle, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. To receive, we even sing this, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Now, you can just look at that one little verse, why is God worthy of our worship? Well, one, He's holy. Our God is a holy God, completely without sin. A holy God whose holy is in, inwardness, right? Righteous inwardly. Holiness put outward is glory. That holiness, what's remarkable is that even in His holiness, He receives us. He's worthy to be worshipped because of grace. 
One of the things we, we've got to press into every situation is grace. What we have as Christians, we've got to press grace into everything because as believers, we are in a religion. Go ahead. It's okay to use the word religion of grace. Christianity is a religion of grace, and that's cause enough to worship. You know, this coming Sunday, I have a really difficult passage to preach. If you think of it, you can pray for me. Romans chapter 1, uh, starting in about verse 24. I'm just going to go down about verse 27. Verse 24 and verse 25 speak directly to uh, uh, exchanging the truth about God for a lie. Then speak to the, um, the sexual immorality across the board, those two verses. And then verse 27 speaks to sexual immorality by way of lesbianism. And then verse 28 uh, speaks to sexual immorality by way of male homosexuality. So, so Sunday, everybody's going to be mad, right? I mean, it's, I mean it's a, it, there's a no way to win. There's no way I walk out smiling on Sunday. But, but that passage, what, what is it, Ms. Mary? Thank you. you. I want you sitting up front Sunday, okay? All right. <laughs> But the problem with all of this sexual immorality, what happens is the base of it is the fact there's been this exchange. We, we look at all the immorality. God is saying, Here, here's what the problem is. We, we don't understand worship. We've not accurately worshipped the Lord. He's worthy of our worship, grace. Another word is the word redemption. Why, why do we worship? Because of redemption. You see, in this, even in this verse, a worthy is the lamb who was slain. All right, Jesus died. Why did he die? He died to purchase people. He, he died on the cross to buy, to redeem sinners. And because of that, we, we should worship him. He's worthy of worship because of his constant provision. I would just write that down. He's constant, constantly providing for us. Uh, John Stigmerton did um, our devotion Wednesdays. We gather together. <clears throat> Most of the pastors and some of the staff would gather and pray for one another, pray for the church, and typically have a, a, a devotion of some kind, me or Mike or John, or somebody leads it. Um, and today it was John and did just a tremendous job. Um, the devotion was pointing us out of Joshua, pointing us uh, to reasons to be thankful for the small things that you forget to thank God for. We, we thank you for the big things, right? We have these things we're praying for. You pray for somebody to come to Christ or someone to be healed or to make it through a certain event. But there's so many small things. I was preaching down in Anderson, South Carolina at uh, Anderson University. And the gentleman that asked me to come down there um, is a professor there. And he wanted to pray for me over the phone. And as he was praying for me, uh, this is a couple of months ago, he, he was praying, he prayed that the air, that the tires would keep their air. That the tires wouldn't go flat, that the engine would run. I mean, he started praying for these like real specific things. And I first thought, hey, bro, let's get through that. I got some stuff I got to do. You know, don't, please don't cover the whole car. But as I was reflecting in his prayer, how right it is for him to recognize that all of this is God's provision. If this works out, all of it, every single bit of it that we take for granted, all of it, God's provision. And if that's the case, then he is worthy of our worship. Let me give you something else. And the second point there is that God created us to worship. You see that? 
Uh, There are any number of verses you can pick. I'll pick Isaiah 43, verse 7, where Isaiah says, Everyone who is called by my name, this is the Lord speaking, Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, I formed and made. So you can put your name in there if you wanted to. So if you're a believer, been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, you put your faith in Christ, here's who you are. You now are called by the name of God. You have his name, right? God created you for a reason. What is that reason? For his, so you reflect honor on him. Keep looking at it. The text says that he formed. The word is an intimate involvement. He made you. And he did that so that we actually live lives of worship. So not only is he worthy of our worship, he also created us for worship. Let me give you a third thing. I would press into this a little bit, that uh, we don't think much about this, but it's true that God actually cares for how we worship. I think churches make a mistake when they don't think through the how of worship. But the Lord Jesus said that God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. There must be truth. We must be filled with the Spirit. So if that's the case then, what are the elements? What are the necessary elements for corporate worship? Now, you hear me say elements, you might be thinking, you mean, do you mean the Lord's Supper? Uh, what I mean by that is, what are the pieces of worship that are common among all Christian churches? What, that you can go anywhere in the world that is a... Christian church, Bible-believing Christian church, what makes that worship service a Christian worship service? I'll start with uh, expositional preaching. Expositional preaching. Why do we do expositional preaching? Well, let me give you a couple of reasons behind that. Expositional preaching is different than topical preaching. Topical preaching is, let's find a topic, and then you teach on the topic. That can be a good thing to do in a classroom. I don't think that's what you should do in church. Because that means that I then decide what the topic is. So if I like cars, I'm going to find and talk about cars. If I think that there are problems in families, then I take families. I'm going to make that the topic. Instead, what we do here, and I think it's the right way to do it, is expositional preaching. Why? Because you discover the meaning of Scripture. That's what should go on is you... You not only read the Bible, that goes on in almost all churches. Expositional preaching is we are now discovering what does it mean? What does the Bible mean? So so we're not just, as as Piper would say, raking leaves, right? We're not raking leaves. We are actually digging into the dirt of it to discover the meaning. And if you know the meaning of the Scripture, so then you've discovered the meaning. So now that meaning drives the agenda, right? So, so it's not the pastor driving one. It's not the, uh, the topic of the day. It's not what's going on in society. We come and we stand under the Bible so that we're discovering the meaning of the Scripture. You get the meaning out, and then that meaning, once you've pulled it out, that drives the whole agenda. So it's going to happen. I'm going to try. I'm, that's what I'm trying Sunday. So I tried this past Sunday. So we always start with the Bible, and then we find out where we're going. It happens, it happens from time to time. Uh, you see somebody somewhere, and they say to you, hey, what you preaching Sunday? 
But you're preaching on Sunday. And it sounds like I'm putting a Jesus juke on them, right? When I say I'm preaching on the Bible Sunday. But no, but I'm, that's, that's, I mean, I, gotta, I can give them the reference point. But the truth of the matter is, I don't actually even know what I'm preaching on Sunday until I get to the Bible. That's when I start finding out. Why? Because that drives, drives the agenda. And then that agenda. So here's how this steps. Expositional preaching, right? You, you, you used it to discover the meaning of Scripture. You found the meaning of Scripture. That meaning then drives the agenda. That agenda then becomes the authority. So the authority in the church is not a pastor. Somebody asks you, who's the, who's the authority at Hickory Grove? Clint Presley or any of the other elder slash pastors are not the authority. The authority is the Bible. So that means that whoever is standing up preaching, we now are under, under the authority of the Bible. The, the Bible is the authority, right? And expositional preaching reminds us by, by virtue of staying in the Bible, by seeing the Bible, by reading the Bible, by teaching the Bible, it reminds the congregation that the authority is in the book. That's where, that's where it lies. That also gives strength to the church that they don't, don't, the church doesn't rest on somebody's personality. It's not dependent on one man or another man. It's dependent on the Bible. As long as that is constant, then it provides such great stability. Also, it cultivates what uh, the B.D. Animal Wild would, would call um, expositional listening. So you got expositional preaching, but you also have to develop expositional listening. And that's a hard thing for a church to develop. It is an acquired taste. If you're accustomed to going to church, and in the sermon you are hearing something that feels relevant and speaks to where you are, and then you all of a sudden start going to another church, and what you're hearing is all of the Bible, and then you're having to adjust yourself to listen to that, it's hard to do. But if you can do it, and a lot of people at Hickory Grove have made the, the switch. Some have not. And, 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 and leave and tell me why they're leaving. I, I've been told that. One, and one day I was told, uh, your sermons, this happened to me in one, one day. One day was, they're too much like a seminary class. You spend all that time talking about the Bible and I want something to help me. I don't have an answer for that. It's going to be beneficial for either one of us to say. That, I mean, it's not condescending, you know what I mean? I have all these choices, but, uh, so I didn't say anything. The second was, hey, you, it's just not very deep. I told you, yeah, you're just, I just feel like we spend so much time, you talk about the Bible, it's just not very deep. And so, yeah, I don't. So you hear all of that kind of stuff. I know that everybody won't come with you. But if you're, able to, if you're able to actually acquire the taste for it, it ruins you to go to anywhere else. If you, if you get this, I don't mean me, I mean just the expositional kind of preaching, then you, then you end up going to church and you think, that guy didn't preach the Bible. And I do it every time I'm on vacation. I'm on vacation, I go to churches, I'm like, this was terrible. They didn't use the Bible. Even Connie's like, baby, why do we even come to church on Sunday? This is not what's supposed to happen on vacation in, at church on Sundays. So y'all can pray for me when I'm on vacation. <laughs> Why do we do it? Um, expositional preaching helps us focus on God. When you come in and now we've read a passage from the Bible that may or may not have anything to do with your situation in life, 
what happens is it realigns your focus. Now your focus is not you sitting thinking, I hope this meets my needs. Your focus now becomes, I, my, it's not my agenda, but God's. Now I'm, I'm thinking, what is God saying? Because if, if the Bible is read out loud, God is speaking. That's how we know God speaks, from, from the Bible being read out loud. Um, I'll give you something else for expositional preaching and listening. It protects us from, it protects, um, it protects the gospel from corruption. The gospel from corruption. The gospel is so easily corrupted if we are not continually taking, taking it out of the Bible and presenting it to people. It's so easy to, to alter things. I listened to part of a sermon today, a guy that's supposed to be a, a, an expositor read a passage from the Bible and he kept, he kept trying to make it say something that is not saying there. It's so easy to corrupt if you're not careful. So exposition then is just taking the truth out. It protects, it protects our lives from corruption. Because we're being continually told we stand under the authority of the Bible. We're under the authority of the Bible. My, my life is to, to be adjusted to this, not the Bible adjusted to me. I, I think expositional listening, when you become someone that, that loves Bible teaching, I just want to, just from a pastor standpoint, it is one of the most encouraging things to hear from a church member that, that you are loving the Bible more and more. I'll give you a, one more about, I kind of got hung up on preaching, but that's what I do. Um, it benefits the unity of a congregation. It unifies us. So, so we're not looking for some, something else to unify us. We're not looking for a common cause we then are unified under the authority of, of the Bible. That's the first, um, that's the first element. Let me give you a, a couple others. The second element, I won't go as long on this. <clears throat> Maybe John, when he teaches again. You've got to have expositional uh, preaching. I think you have to have gospel singing. Gospel singing. That the singing, when we... And worship, watch on Sunday when you see the words on the screen. As you're singing them, read them to yourself and think about the words. They're going to be either talking to God or about God, and it's always saturated with the gospel. That, that's the best way. Do you ever find yourself humming a song, singing a song? You know, I like folk music, uh, and, and I like blues. I'm like crazy about jazz. Um, some of the blues and folk music, and then some of the stuff that comes out of uh, Appalachian Mountains. Uh, sometimes you can take English poetry and put it to, to music. I, anyway, I need a story. I like songs that have a story, and especially if it's a tragic story. I like that. I mean, because you want the song to fit, you want to feel, right? So, but I find myself singing these songs that are, you know, that are these terrible stories because it's there. And for whatever reason, God has made us so that we remember things in song and how great it is for us as a church to make sure that our songs are, are gospel-saturated so that you, even without knowing it, find yourself singing a song about the gospel that you heard on Sunday. Thank God that it is a, it's worthwhile. So why do we do these things? We do it, well, that's one of the reasons that um, we have expositional preaching, gospel singing. A third thing that should be in um, church is corporate praying. Corporate praying. That is to say, we gather together to hear all these things. 
and then we, we pray. Why do we do corporate praying? Well, one is it, it teaches people that may not know how to pray out loud to pray. It's good, let's say you, you have a fear of praying out loud. Most of that has to do with either uh, you might be an introvert or maybe, uh, you're, you, maybe you're prideful, you don't want to say the wrong thing, or maybe there's, you're afraid to say the wrong thing, you're so humble you're afraid you're going to say the wrong thing. And all of those are really legitimate. Maybe you just don't like to talk out loud in a, in a group. But there comes a time when you get called on. If, you, if people find out you're the Christian at family gatherings, guess who says the prayer? I've said the prayer at every single family gathering since I was about 17. Since I said, I want to be a preacher one day. Well, okay, well, here, pray for the turkey. You learn how to, how to do that stuff, right? And if you can hear it, or you can hear the Trinitarian nature of the prayers, a prayer that we offer up to God the Father on the merits of Jesus the Son by the power of the Spirit. It teaches us theology. It teaches us to think with the prayer. It teaches that we are a body, that what this prayer is going up on behalf of this one unified body, that we're not just a bunch of individuals. We are connected together. Okay, you should have corporate prayer. I'm going to give you a fourth one. The fourth one that I would just add um, should be in worship, Christian worship, is the ordinances. If you came from a high church tradition, uh, if you came from a Catholic church or an Anglican church or a Lutheran church, uh, even a Presbyterian church, you would call them sacraments. Uh, we would call them ordinance because we're, we've taken one step away and we don't see any uh, sacerdotal, we don't see that the sacredness in the elements, the sacred, sacredness is in Christ, right? But the ordinances are the Lord's Supper and baptism. Baptism being the front door into the church, the first public display, first act of obedience, the first identification with the church itself and with Christ. That baptism then leads to uh, the, the right to be able to take the Lord's Supper as a part of the body. And so those two are the, the elements that go in that are our outward symbols, really are the big symbols that we as, as Protestants and really as Baptist Protestants have. Okay, so with that in mind, let me just talk of, um, let's talk about worship a bit. What do you have in front of you? Oh, how about the uh, regulative principle of worship? Anybody ever heard that before? Did it make you feel smart just to hear it and say it? Yeah, you what? Rosario Butterfield, is that where you heard it? So there's a regulative principle of worship and the normative principle of worship. Uh, Regulative. I've talked to John about this a little bit. Um, reg regulative principle of worship tells us that only those elements that have biblical warrant are permitted in worship. So you think about some of the worship services you've been to in your life. We are not governed at Hickory Grove by the regulative principle of worship. We, however, press toward it. We use that as a guide. We try not to make hard and fast, terrible rules but we do think that's a good guide. So let me tell you what it is again. The regulative principle of worship is that only those elements that have biblical warrant that come out of the Bible are permitted. Examples, scripture, reading, praying, preaching, singing, praise. So, so I was talking to John about our worship, and he says that um, everything in worship, everything in worship teaches us something about God. There's nothing that goes on in corporate worship on a Sunday morning at Hickory Grove that is neutral. So everything that happens, when you're in there Sunday, you check it out and think, think for yourself, you see. 
Everything that goes on in the worship service, there's nothing about it that's neutral. Everything there teaches us something about God. So what does it teach us? I, once again, John told me this. I think John wants to be a preacher, actually. Here, here's what he said. Teaches us about the glory of God. Listen to this. Uh, he, he even wrote it out in three points. All of them start with G. He's preaching right there. Yeah. The glory of God, the gravity of sin, and the grandeur of God's grace. So what does worship teach us? Teaches about the glory of God. Teaches about the, uh, the uh, almost said the grandeur of sin. The, the gravity of sin and the grandeur of God's grace. Okay. Everybody get all that? All right, so that was a quick run through what typical Christian worship should look like. How does that play out at Hickory Grove? If you come from a high church tradition, there was a stated, clear liturgy that was the same all the time. And uh, as Baptists, part of being a Baptist, um, first we were Puritans, then we were Separatists, then we were Congregationalists, then we were Baptists. That's kind of the line in broad speaking. And part, part of what we were doing was getting further and further away from some of the formalism. But the truth is, even without stating it, we have our own liturgy. I mean, we, you, you don't, we don't call it liturgy. Because that don't feel right to call it liturgy. Not a bunch of Anglicans sitting around here. But the truth is, we do have a certain liturgy. So I got our, I got our worship guide that sort of guides us through on Sundays. Everything in there is there for a reason. So here's the approach to worship at Hickory Grove. On Sunday mornings, you'll hear, hear our call to worship. That call to worship is usually done by John with the Bible. Why is that call to worship there? That call to worship sets the tone. That call to worship reminds us that worship begins with God, not with man, but with God. We read from God's Word to remind us that it is actually God from the Bible who is calling us to worship. He's the one that called and saved us. He now on the Lord's Day is calling us to worship. The call to worship centers our heart. What happens is our hearts now are being centered on Christ alone. The call to worship, you can feel it in the room. The Bible is being read. People are standing to hear it. And now all of the chatter ceases. Distractions are being put aside. We are being called corporately to worship. It also reminds us of the purpose. There is not, will not be one question. You can be the worst pagan in the world. You come in on a Sunday morning at Hickory Grove. When it starts and the call to worship you now have just been told why we are here. That this won't be something that's going to entertain you. We now are seeking to bring you to an encounter with the living God through the gospel. Call to worship is an important part. And although we don't have a formal liturgy, it's what we do to start the worship. It doesn't happen by accident. It happens intentionally. There's a reason that's there. That call to worship there is there on purpose. It is not neutral. I'm going to give you another word, uh, praise. I'm going to make that a broad one, uh, a broad category. I would put that with uh, hymns and songs, spiritual songs. I would put that with the songs that we sing with exuberance to the Lord. After the call of worship, we normally will spend some time in praise. We'll do that again in, as a part of the service. Why do we do that? 
Well, a couple of reasons. Let me give you those reasons. Number one, we are commanded to praise God. It's part of what we are created to do. We're told in the Bible to praise God. Read the Psalms, you'll see it. Number two, He's worth us praising Him. But this is why we've gathered for the actual praising of the Lord. Uh, number three, when we praise God through song, it centers our mind on Christ. It helps us to start now, stop thinking about all of the things that we need. We now are standing, looking in one direction. We are singing unto the Lord. It centers our minds on Christ. And I'll give you a fourth one. Praise makes us small. Praise makes us small. I think too many churches too much, spend too much time making the individual big. That's not what we're called to do. We are to be made small so that we see the bigness of God. That's why we don't make it so that everybody, whoever has the loudest and strongest opinion wins. We are seeking to make sure that we become small and He becomes great. Praise does that. I'll give you the next element. When we have the ordinances, I'm going to put baptism in the Lord's Supper. We talked about it generally a little bit ago. Here at Hickory Grove, uh, why we do baptism and the Lord's Supper like we do. Baptism, uh, just to sort of lay out, we believe the New Testament teaches that baptism happens after conversion. This was a big piece of the Protestant Reformation. It was the big piece of starting the colonies, Massachusetts, New Haven, it, because uh, there was some debate on when do you baptize someone. We believe the Bible teaches very clearly that baptism is not a sign of the extension of circumcision in the Old Testament. We, we, don't, we don't accept that. We say the baptism is from the New Testament is a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. It is the picture of us being identified with Christ, being raised to walk. You hear us say it on Sundays, raised to walk in new life. And a picture of what's already happened on the inside is a follow-through of the commands of Jesus. It is the first step of obedience. And at Hickory Grove, we don't rush people into baptism. You're never going to hear me on a Sunday after a service say, Look, if you hadn't been baptized yet, come on down. We got us a, a baby pool here. We'll baptize you. We're not, I'm not going to have an obligation as a pastor, all of our elders feel this. You have an obligation to make sure, to the degree we can, because only God can really know, but to make sure to the degree we can, when we present someone for baptism, that person has a clear understanding of what the gospel is, has had a clear conversion experience, can articulate that experience, and, is, and understands why the cross. We, do, we can't make that person saved. We can walk them through what it means to be saved. And that takes time sometimes. That baptism then becomes a serious piece of worship. It's in, it's in the worship service. We do it on Sunday mornings, the Lord's Day, with the congregation because it is a congregational event. If you want to get saved and then you want to be baptized, I'm not going to come to your house because you have a swimming pool and baptize you in your swimming pool. It's done in the congregation as a testimony to the congregation. I am now not only one with Christ, I am a part of this church. It becomes a serious means of worship. That's baptism. That baptism then for our church um, is means to open up for, you'll hear me say it a lot, 
on Sunday mornings for the Lord's Supper. You'll hear me tell the children, if you've not given your life to Jesus, then you need to let this be something where your mom and dad can teach you about the gospel. I get that from 1 Corinthians 11. That's where Paul gives the warning, don't take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. I think not being a Christian would be an unworthy manner. The, the way we mark that out here is through baptism. The Lord's Supper is a part of worship. It helps us remember what Jesus did on the cross. It helps us remember that we are part of a body, that we're operating together. It's put there on purpose. It's not something we do as an appendage. It becomes part of, of worship. I'm going to give you another piece too. And look, I just took one of our worship guides and went through it, and I'm explaining to you why we do what we do. Corporate confession. So typically, on a Sunday morning, we start with the call to worship, we sing a little bit, and then we have a time of corporate confession. The very first pastoral prayer offered on a Sunday morning at Hickory Grove is a corporate confession of sin. Corporate confession reminds us why the good news you're going to hear is so good. It's what confession. When you confess sin, it's not, man, how terrible I am. It is a pointing to how good God is. Confessing sin is not you declaring how terrible you are. Confessing sin is a declaration of how good God's grace is. Corporate confession reminds everybody here of the holiness of God. Corporate confession on the front end of a worship service. It is there to remind us we need what we're getting ready to hear. We need the gospel of grace. On the front end, I mean, we're, you, 10 minutes into worship at Hickory Grove is saying, hey, we need grace. We need the gospel of grace. I, th I, think that I think that corporate confession reminds us we live in a sinful culture. This sin is a real thing. It has affected us individually. It's affected our families. It's affected our workspaces, our schools, our children. We need grace. Forgiveness and grace. That's why corporate confession is in our service. We, not only the corporate confession, we do some praising. But there's another prayer uh, you might would have called this like a pastoral prayer if you were at another church. And really, that's what it is here, I suppose. Oftentimes, uh, Steve will do that. Sometimes Mike will do that. It's the prayer very close to uh, the offering. The pastoral prayer is there to that, that individual standing there, whether it's me or Steve or Mike or whoever is doing that, is there as a representative to represent the needs of the congregation. That prayer uttered there is, is on behalf of the entire congregation and the many needs in the congregation. That pastoral prayer, um, it reminds people, hey, we have a need and God meets that need. I think it teaches people how to pray. Oftentimes, if there is a new Christian, that you just wonder even, how do you pray? So you've heard someone say, you're supposed to get up in the morning and read some of the Bible and spend some time praying. What does that even look like? Well, sometimes the pastoral prayer can be an actual teaching tool for a new Christian to learn how to say prayers to the Lord. I think it also teaches theology, that God is big, we are small, we are in need of Him moving. It teaches us that God hears prayer, that God works through prayer. That, that he's not some immovable God that prayer doesn't, uh, is not useful in his kingdom. He uses that prayer. 
I would add another. You didn't know you had this many elements in worship, did you? Yeah. Uh, the giving we do. The giving. It's important for us, uh, although uh, increasingly people will give online, and I go back and forth whether or not I like that or not. But I understand it because it keeps us faithful doing that. But there is something good and right to the, of the tangible handing over of goods to the Lord. We'll always uh, take up an offering on, on a Sunday morning as an act of worship. It is in there. Some churches will have you do the offering as you leave. There'll be boxes out there at the door, and you just put an offering there. I'm not, I'm not for that. I want it to be in the actual why? Well, but it shows that God is primary and my goods are secondary. That God is primary. My goods are secondary. What do I give? I give because I love, I love the church that Jesus died for. I love being a part of the church that Jesus died for. I count it a privilege to actually give to the church. Giving, when I give to the church, I am giving to God. When I, when I give, you know what it does? When you give, it keeps me dependent. It reminds me that this is all the Lord's. I am dependent on the Lord. I'm not acquiring all of this for myself. It reminds me to be grateful. It, it makes me unselfish, and I'm naturally selfish. Giving is good for my soul. And the Bible says that God blesses a cheerful giver. Another element is preaching. I talked at length about that earlier. Preaching should be expositional. It should be Christ-centered. I think it should be passionate. There is some debate on the guys that I respect. Some guys think that you ought to preach without any kind of affect, emotion, that you should let just the, just the content do the speaking. Uh, I'm on the other side of it. I think that, uh, as you probably can tell, I'm on the other side that uh, I feel like that it ought to be inflamed with all that you have, that preaching uh, should be Christ-centered, it should be convictional, it should be passionate, it should be engaging, it should be directing people to worship, all of those things. So, so talk to enough about preaching. If you think about our worship service, at the end of the preaching, we have the time of response. This is a newer addition to the evangelical church. It doesn't feel new to us. Baptists, we, kinda all, we were revivalistic coming out of the, uh, the Second Great Awakening. It's where we got so revivalistic. It's where we added the invitation. I think it is a good thing to have. Uh, even if it's not completely historic in Protestant churches, I think it's a good thing to have because it provides an opportunity for a physical response. Now, we need to not, need to not think, okay, the Holy Spirit is moving if people come down the aisle. That's, that's not a good way to think, right? Uh, because if you'll hear the invitation we give, oftentimes they're invitation to come forward. And let, I wish more people would come forward that, that brothers and sisters could pray together on the Lord's Day. Pray for our needs, pray for one another, pray for health issues, pray for people that are lost, uh, pray because you've been in a struggle, speak to a, a pastor. We always will have the, we include in that, come forward to talk to someone about giving your life to Jesus. But that response there is, um, it tells us the power of the gospel, it tells us um, to reflect on scripture and our dependence on the Lord. I think there is a Trinitarian element to the response in that. We have prayed to God the Father, preached about Jesus the Son. We are dependent on God the Spirit to move in people's lives, and we'll let Him do that. I'll give you a tenth one. 
the announcements. You may or may not notice. If you don't get here on time, you don't notice. If you don't get here on time, you don't hear the announcements because they are before church starts. We do that on purpose. Used to, in a regular church, uh, church service, you would get started and then somebody would come up after singing a couple of songs and give you some announcements and then we'd start back to worship again. We've decided that we want the announcements to be on the front and the back of worship. So when there's a call to worship, we now have started into an entire time of unbroken worship of the Lord until we have announcements at the end. So when the response time is over, um, typically you may hear one or two things said, say a word of prayer, and we leave. That last uh, thing is the, did I skip the benediction? Well, fortunately, I don't do this on Sunday, skipping the benediction. The benediction comes from the Latin word bene, uh, which means good or, or well, uh, dictio, um, which means to say, put the two together, benediction, to say good, to put a blessing, to, to ask God to bless the congregation as we are departing. You'll see that. And here, a man stands up, says the benediction at the end of the service. I'll give you four effects, and then I'm going to quit because I made fun of Brian so hard uh, before. What are the effects? I think there are a lot of effects. Let me give you four of them. They're on the back. What does it do to me? Okay, we know what it is for God. We know about the commands. How do I personally benefit? I think, I think worship encourages you. See Hebrews? We stir one another up. It's encouraging. I don't think you should skip church if you're feeling down. I saw um, a lady Bible teacher, I won't call her name, put that on Twitter one time. Hey, it's okay to do, don't go to church. You're not feeling well, you're not feeling bad, you don't want to be around people. I think that is the absolute wrong thing to do. You need to go and sit under the authority of the Bible, see that this is God's agenda and not yours, and be encouraged by the believers. I think also there's accountability. That worship makes us accountable to God and to one another. It, there's a reason we worship as a congregation, because we are connected and accountable to each other. Iron sharpening, iron one man sharpens another. That brings me to the third, to the third one. It's community. Builds our, builds our connectionalism because the worship is about God, and all of our differences uh, fade when we are unified on the gospel and who God is. And then when we depart, uh, worship drives us to mission. So, so mission must always emanate out of worship. It's not something in addition to Worship comes out of mission. And isn't that what Piper said, that uh, the missions exist because worship doesn't around the world? So we go out of worship to, to share Christ with other people so that they can worship Him rightly. Well, I'll close with that. You can see why I only had one topic tonight, teaching about worship. Let me pray for you. We'll be done. Father in heaven, we thank you through Jesus, by the power of the Spirit, we thank you for the chance to corporately gather together on the Lord's Day to worship you. We pray that you bring us back Sunday to do just that. Between now and then, we ask that tomorrow morning and the next day, you wake us up in enough time just to spend a few moments in devotional reading and praying, seeking you for the day. We thank you for your grace. Go with us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks, everybody. You're dismissed.